I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Alexander Rosen, the Executive Director of the Long Now Foundation. And tonight is a special night for a few reasons, but the, um, the primary one is that we have started a partnership with the SF Asia Society, and, or Northern California Asia Society. Um, and uh, that's how we have uh, found this amazing speaker tonight. And we're gonna be curating a few talks a year with them and uh, I wanted to introduce Jack Wadsworth from the Asia Society to talk a little bit about that partnership. Xander, thank you very much. Uh, I'm delighted to be here representing not just the San Francisco Asia Society, but the Global Asia Society. We were founded by John D. Rockefeller III in 1956, and he said Asia will be important, and we need to understand its culture if we are going to understand Asia. Uh, it couldn't be more important today, and uh, that was a vision that I think conforms to long now. Uh, we are delighted to have the opportunity to bring more speakers with Asian backgrounds, Asian flavor, Asian knowledge uh, to these lectures, and uh, nothing could be more important to us here in the Asia Society in San Francisco to be looking into uh, a future as partners with Long Now. So with that. Thank you very much. And we know that Asia is going to be a very big part of the future and the Long Now. And we're looking forward to hearing about it tonight. Thank you very much. Yeah, the, the next speaker that the Asia Society is, is uh, bringing onto this series is the famous Asian uh, George Schultz. <laughs> former Secretary of State of the United States. Um, these talks do get into these kind of continental issues. And one of the speakers uh, a couple years ago was uh, Ian Morris, a history professor at Stanford, whose uh, book and whose talk was uh, Why the West Rules, for now. And the title of tonight's speaker Kishore Mabubani is a book that just came out. I think they're in the lobby. Has the West lost it? And the rest of that is Asia in the process of basically taking power in the world. And he, uh, he has been in the thick of that and can speak from experience as well as very interesting perspective. Kishore Mabubani. Uh, thank, thank you, Stuart. Uh, I must say I'm very happy to be back here to see some old friends and young friends. And as you know, when you uh, have a title with a question mark, has the West lost it? I'm supposed to keep you in suspense <laughs> till the end, <laughs> uh, so that you're at least you're sitting on the edge of your seats, you know, to find out what the answer is. But I'm going to give the game away. <laughs> I'm going to give you the answer at the very beginning so you can relax and not worry about what the answer is. And the answer is no. Or more, or more accurately, 
<laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but I fear, I do fear that it may do so. And that's why I came out with this book, uh, which I actually launched literally a week ago in London. Uh, so it's a very uh, uh, a new book. And I'll try to explain to you why uh, I wrote this book. Because um, in many ways, the West has done so much for the world. And indeed, the first part of my remarks, I'm going to divide my remarks into three parts. In part one, I'll try to explain why does the West matter? I mean, why should we be concerned about whether or not the West is going to lose it or not lose it? And as you know, at the end of the day, and I'll be using this statistic often, the West only makes up 12% of the world's population. 88% lives outside. Why does the 12% matter? That's what I hope to answer. And then, in part two, I'll try to explain why I think the West has gone off course and has lost its strategic directions, what mistakes it has made. And then in part three, to end on an optimistic and positive note, uh, I'll explain why I think, how I think the West can still change course. And at the end of the day, as a friend of mine who read this book actually said, Kishore, this is actually a love letter from you to the West to say, hey, wake up, you know, the world is changing. So let me, let me begin with part one of my story. Why does the West matter? The West basically matters. Because if the West hadn't succeeded, if it hadn't been the first civilization to transform itself, and as you know, it was several centuries of transformation, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, all that amazing transformation that the West did, which it originally, in a sense, kept to itself, it has fundamentally now shared it with the rest of the world. And the reason why the world is today a much better place than it has ever been is because of the success of the West. Now, when I say something like the world it hasn't been in such a good place, there's a look of puzzlement often, <laughs> especially to my Western friends who, as you know, are not necessarily the most optimistic people in the world today. Uh, but let me give you some data to explain why the world has never been better. And in that sense, I'm glad, Stuart, that I'm speaking uh, after Steven Pinker because I'm actually going to begin by citing something from him. And actually, I, I had a very interesting conversation with him. I was just spent some time in Harvard, and I had a very good one-on-one -on -one conversation with him. And I gave him a copy of the book, by the way, uh, and I signed it, and I say, to a fellow lonely optimist. <laughs> but this is what Steven Pinker says, and I quote in this book. He says, violence has fallen dramatically. Today, we are probably living in the most peaceful moment of our species' time on Earth. He adds, global violence has fallen steadily since the middle of the 20th century. According to the Human Security Brief 2006, the number of battle deaths in interstate wars 
has declined from more than 65,000 per year in the 1950s to less than 2,000 per year in this decade. Now, that's a remarkable uh, reduction in violence. Now, I know you wake up in the morning, you read serious stories about Syria and fighting in Yemen and so on and so forth. But if you take a long-term look, the world has clearly become more and more peaceful. Now, take another area where clearly humanity has been trying to transform the world, which is, of course, in, uh, in trying to eradicate uh, global poverty. And here again, I, I'm actually quite shocked. People don't know how amazing advances we have made in eradicating global poverty. And so let me, let me quote what Oxford's Max Rosa says. In 1950, not so long ago, that's two years after I was born, in 1950, three quarters of the world were living in extreme poverty. In 1981, it was still 44%. But by 2016, the share in extreme poverty had fallen below 10%. So in my lifetime, the number of people living in absolute poverty went from three quarters of the world's population to less than 10%. And hopefully within my lifetime, by 2030, the National Intelligence Council predicts it'll go to zero. I emphasize this because any future historian looking at our time will say what an amazing time that was. From 1950, three quarters of the world population living in absolute poverty to 2030 to zero. Now, this is the biggest ever improvement in the human condition that we've ever seen. We are living in amazing times. And I can tell you, by the way, that poverty is not just about physical deprivation. When I grew up in Singapore as a child, Singapore's per capita income was the same as Ghana's, $500. And I happened to come also from a relatively poor family in a poor society. In fact, at the age of six, uh, I was sent for a special feeding program because I was technically undernourished. As you can see today, I'm overnourished. <laughs> But I tell that story because if you haven't experienced poverty, you actually don't know how psychologically debilitating it is to your soul. You feel helpless. You're just clinging on to life and you're trying to survive. Not quite sure where your next meal, next income is going to come. And guess what? We've got rid of that. That's an amazing leap in the history of human civilization. And who did it? The West did it. Another example. Somebody else. On literacy. Max Rosa. In 1800, there were 120 million people in the world that could read and write. Today, there are 6.2 billion people with the same skill. 
Now, let's, let me conclude. I have lots of data. Let me conclude with the last one. Johan Nobuck of the Cato Institute notes. If someone had told you in 1990 that over the next 25 years, world hunger would decline by 40%, child mortality would half, and extreme poverty would fall by three quarters, you'd have told them that they were a naive fool. But the fools were right. This is truly what happened. So we live in amazing times. So why has this happened? Why has humanity, especially in the last 30 years, made this incredible transformation? And why didn't it happen before? And the simplest answer is that the West gifted to the rest of the world the best aspects of Western civilization, which the rest absorbed, and as a result of that, humanity leapt forward in such a dramatic way. Now, there are many, you can give many examples of the gifts that the West has shared in one of my previous books. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I spoke about it at the Asia Society in San Francisco in my book, The New Asian Hemisphere. I talked about the seven pillars of Western wisdom that the West shared with the world. But in this book, I point to three enormous gifts that the West made. The first is what I call the gift of reasoning. Now, reasoning is one of the most sort of commonly used words, but people don't understand how special it is when you make this leap forward and enter the world where suddenly you can figure out, you know, through science and technology, through cause and effect, why the world works and how you can improve the world. And I can tell you again, the advantage of being, having my kind of history and background is that I have seen the world before the spread of reason and I have lived through the change and I saw the consequences. So let me explain in a very personal way. I'm ethnically a Sindhi. Sindhis come from Sindh, which is now part of Pakistan, but my family were Hindus and so they were refugees from the, as a result of the partition, one of the most bloodiest uh, partitions in human history and because of that my family ended up as immigrants in Singapore. But the reason I tell that story is that before my generation, my mother, my father, my uncles, my grandfathers, my granduncles, grandmothers, none of them ever went to university. None of my ancestors. The first person from my entire family chain to go into university was me. I broke, somehow or other, I broke through. Even my three sisters didn't go to university. I broke through. I fortunately studied philosophy, Western philosophy, understood the magic of it, and understood how it transformed the world. Now what's significant is that after me, my generation, virtually no one went to university. But the next generation below mine, all my three children, all my nephews and nieces, all the children of my first cousins, all went to university. Right? Isn't that amazing? You can see what a great leap you make 
from a world where you don't have any access to the kind of modern education to a world where everyone has access. And that's what happened again in the last 30, 40 years. That's amazing. So the number of minds that have been opened around the world by the spread of Western education is quite amazing. The spread of reasoning has transformed the world. Another gift, which I also attribute to the West, is what I call the change in psychology. And here again, I'll make it personal. When I look back at my parents and their attitude towards life, and they suffered a lot in some ways, their view was, if it happens, life is fated. You can't change your life. It's all written for you. But my generation, as a result of education, said, no, it's not fate. We can change the world. We can make it a better place. We can have a better life. When you can take control of your life, you can do so many things. And that's what hundreds of millions, billions of people are doing around the world. And last, last example of a gift from the West. And I can again say this with some conviction because my last job, I was dean of a school of public policy for 13 years. And the last gift from the West was I call the gift of good governance. And here again, it's quite amazing people are not aware. What a fundamental transformation has happened as a result of West's sharing good governance, is that again, if you look at ancient Asian history, when you had kings and queens and feudal rulers, they believed that they had the right to rule and never thought that they were accountable to their people. Right? Today, every Asian government believes that they are accountable to their people. So what do they do? They improve the livelihoods of their people. Indonesia will build thousands of schools for its children. Countries in Africa will establish clinics in all parts of the country. Good governance is spreading and transforming the world. This too is a gift from the West. Now clearly, I can go on and say a lot more. But it's very clear, and a future historian will see this very clearly, it was first the West that succeeded, then the Western civilization shared its fruits with the rest of humanity, and now the rest of humanity has succeeded. And a future historian, looking at our slice of history, will say, this is where the Western project to create a more civilized world has succeeded, and therefore this should be a moment of the greatest celebration for the West. You should all be very happy. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm not even kidding. I'm dead serious. That you have changed the lives of billions of people. 
who are today, even at the very bottom, experiencing a quality of life that even the top 10% couldn't even dream of having. Life expectancy. For most of human history, we would die by 30 or 40. Today, around the world, 70 or 80. Amazing, right? So why is it? Why isn't the West celebrating? What's gone wrong? So this is part two of my comments. And part two is a story that clearly the West, at a time of the great transformation of humanity, has made at least three major strategic mistakes. And these strategic mistakes have, I think, led to the condition of the West today, where you get this sense of depression, uncertainty about the future. So what are the three strategic mistakes? The first strategic mistake you made was at a high point in the history of the West. When you had one of your greatest victories, you defeated the Soviet Union, you demolished an entire empire without, fi without firing a shot. A great victory. And what was the result of the great victory? After a great victory comes great hubris. And you thought that you had reached the end of history. <laughs> All you had to do was to go on autopilot, cruise control, carry on. You won. The rest of the world has got to change. The West doesn't have to make any strategic adjustments. You succeeded. You're number one. And the reason why that was a strategic mistake is that you decided to go to sleep, and this is what future historians will notice, you decided to go to sleep at the precise moment when the two largest civilizations started to wake up after 200 years of slumber. As you know, China woke up, First in 1978, thanks to Deng Xiaoping for modernizations, went on. So China woke up in the 1990s or so is when India woke up. Right? And why is this significant? It's significant because from the year one to the year 1820, for 1,800 out of the last 2,000 years, the two largest economies of the world were always those of China and India. And it's only in the last 200 years that Europe took off and America took off. So if you view the past 200 years of world history against the backdrop of the past 2,000 years, of world history, the past 200 years of world history have been a major historical aberration. All aberrations come to a natural end. So it's perfectly natural to see the return of China and India. What was not natural is the speed at which they came back. 
I'll give you one statistic. In 1980, as a share of the global GNP in purchasing power parity terms, United States share was 25%. China's share was 2.2%. Less than 10% of the United States, 1980. You all remember the year. By 2014, boom, China's share had become larger than the United States. 34 years. Amazing. So they were going to wake up. And guess what? At the moment when China and India decide to wake up, you decided to go to sleep. <laughs> and so for you, obviously, you're puzzled. This wasn't supposed to happen. You're supposed to remain number one forever with the end of history. But the end of history, unfortunately, was the moment of the return of history. So you got just the wrong advice. And I say somewhat cruelly in this book that Francis Fukuyama's essay did a lot of brain damage to many leading minds, leading them to completely misunderstand the world that was coming. That's the first strategic mistake. The second strategic mistake you made was in the year 2001. What happened in 2001? Normally, when I ask what happened in 2001, the answer is, of course, 9-11 happened in 2001. And as you know, 9-11 was a big shock to the United States. I was there. I actually was in Manhattan when 9-11 happened. I was the Singapore ambassador to the UN then. So I could feel the shock. And it was a big event. And it's perfectly natural to be shocked by an event and therefore focus on that. Unfortunately, as a result of that shock, the West didn't notice that something much more significant happened in the year 2001. Far more significant of far greater earth-shaking significance. And that was the entry of China into the World Trade Organization. And by the way, I'm not a, how do you say, trained economist, but I can tell you just from the basics of economics, that when you suddenly inject 800, let's say 800 million new workers, into the global capitalist system, there would of course be creative destruction. Quite naturally, new competition. So you should have anticipated that there will be loss of jobs. And indeed, one economist recently, I think his name, if I'm not mistaken, is Otter, A-U-T-O-R, Google him, has come up with data to show how many jobs have been lost in manufacturing as a result of China's entry into the global capitalist system. It should have been anticipated. But you didn't. You had your strategic sites focused on the Islamic world. You got deeper and deeper entangled into it, while something far more important was happening with China's entry to WTO. And if you want the simplest explanation 
of why Trump happened? It's quite simple. You didn't pay attention to the challenges that your working classes were having as a result of China's entry into WTO. Big strategic mistake. So what's the third strategic mistake? This happened more recently. And I can tell you, I'm absolutely certain that future historians will be amazed that something quite remarkable happened in human history in 2014 and nobody noticed. And I already told you what it was. In 2014, China's share of the global GNP became bigger than America's. And why is that a big deal? Because for the first time in almost 200 years, a non-Western power had emerged and become number one. And what's even more significant, in that year, in PPP terms, number one economy, China, Asian. Number two, United States of America. Number three, India, Asian. Number four, Japan, Asian. What a remarkable transformation. From 200 years of Western domination, boom, Asia comes back. And you didn't pay attention at all to that change. And it's pretty obvious that when the world changes so much, you have to make strategic adjustments. And I can tell you as someone who spends a lot of his time trying to understand the world, trying to understand what the major strategic developments in the world are, it is a source of great mystery to me that in a country where you have the best strategic think tanks in the world, you spend more money on think tanks than any country in the world does. You have the best universities in the world. You have the best newspapers in the world. And you didn't even notice that history had taken a big turn in the last few years. And while history had taken a big turn, you carried on in cruise control and kept going straight. And that's why the West feels that it is lost, is not sure where it is heading, because you haven't understood that the texture and chemistry of the world has changed fundamentally. When you go from a world where only 12% were the active, dynamic citizens of planet Earth, making the big decisions, forging the biggest breakthroughs, and then suddenly, the 88% has woken up and the world has changed. And it's going to change even more. And all your mindsets, all your concepts, all your perceptions of the world are still stuck in the 19th and 20th century, which I said was the era of great aberration. And therefore, you have to fundamentally change course in the 21st century if you want to deal with a world that is coming. 
So in an effort to be helpful to the West, because I can tell you, someone like me, with my life story, you know, from where I came from, if I had followed my natural destiny of my uncles and cousins and all, I would never have gone to university. I've never had the kind of Western education that transformed my life. My life has improved so much. So I appreciate what the West has done for the world. So I do want to help the West. But as you know, sometimes when you want to help your friends, you sometimes have to provide bitter medicine. And therefore, the bitter medicine I give is all with the intention of helping the West. So what I propose in this book, which I grant to you, by the way, will not be reviewed by the New York Times, will not be reviewed by any of the leading journals. I know this. All the books I publish in New York, over the last 10 years, each time trying to tell the West, watch out, the world is changing. Three books published in New York, none reviewed in the New York Times, none reviewed in the New York Review of Books. It's very difficult to accept advice that is so different. So what is the advice I give in this book? I say, why not adopt a new 3M strategy? 3Ms doesn't stand for the Minnesota Mining Company, I think. 3Ms are three M words. The first M is minimalist. Now, what do I mean by minimalist? Very simple. For the last 200 years, the West has injected itself into every society of planet Earth. Initially, as you know, it was an unhappy experience. In the 19th century, virtually every corner of the world was colonized by Western societies. And when America woke up, it also began to colonize, colonize Philippines, intervene in other countries. That was how you dominated the world for 200 years. The trouble about dominating the world for 200 years is that it then becomes a habit you get used to. You assume that it is your fate, your responsibility to manage the rest of the world and to fix every problem that needs fixing because it's the responsibility of the West. And to be fair, as I've said, many of the things you did were good for the world. The world has transformed itself. Strong societies are emerging around the world. But when that happens, you've got to adjust to a new reality. And so why not become minimalist in what you're doing? And here again, I can tell you one fact that future historians will again marvel at. Why does the West believe that it can somehow or other miraculously 
on his own by sending aircraft carriers, planes, bombings, transform the Islamic world and make the world a better place. You know, when you injected your hand into the Islamic world, it's not surprising that it's like injecting your hand to a hornet's nest and getting bitten. Right? And I say, one of the things I say in this book, which is politically incorrect, is that I know you worry a lot about terrorism. And you think that that's a big threat. But how much of it is a result of your interventions in their lives? Wouldn't there be a backlash? Now, of course you say, but if we withdraw, things will only get worse. If we don't intervene, they'll all suffer. Let me tell you one simple fact. There's one part of the world which actually has almost as many Muslims as the Arab world. That part of the world is Southeast Asia. In fact, Southeast Asia, by the way, is the most diverse corner of planet Earth. In my book, The ASEAN Miracle, which I brought out last year, I say that out of 650 million people, you have 240 million Muslims, 110 million Christians, 150 million Buddhists, Mahayana Buddhists, Hinayana Buddhists, you have Taoists, you have Confucianists, you have Hindus, you even have communists. <laughs> Southeast Asia. I know what's interesting? The last 20 years, especially since 9-11, you've been so absorbed in the Middle East and you neglected Southeast Asia. Guess what? As a result of your neglect of Southeast Asia, it is now one of the most peaceful corners of planet Earth. <laughs> Doing very well, growing at 6% a year, already the seventh largest economy in the world, about to become the fourth largest economy in the world. And you didn't even notice. How many of you paid attention to ASEAN? The ASEAN miracle. Maybe some of you did. Sure. But you go and ask the average man in the street about ASEAN, never heard of it. But you ask them about Syria, yeah, I've heard of Syria, yeah. So I'm just telling you this, that the strategic impulses that you had in the 19th and 20th centuries to intervene in other parts of the world may have been justified, may have been rational, right? At one time, but clearly, not when the world has changed. And just this weekend, I was reading in the New York Times a statistic that someone uh, said about, again, United States share of the global GNP in PPP terms. In 1945, it was 50%. In 1985, it was 22.5%. Soon, it'd be down to 13%, from 50% in 1945 to 13%. So your share of the global GNP clearly has gone down by 75%. Has that changed any of your attitudes, approaches to the world? None. So as a friend, I can tell you that you're much better off adopting a minimalist strategy. It doesn't mean disengagement. 
but it just means a more prudent way of engagement with the rest of the world. And I must emphasize one thing. Your gift of education, of reasoning to the rest of the world is still continuing to make the world a better place with or without your intervention. So be minimalist. What's the second M? The second M is multilateral. And I know the word multilateral is designed to put an audience to sleep. Whenever you talk about United Nations, global governance, people's eyes begin closing, what a boring subject. But guess what? What will save the world is multilateralism. Why? Because the, you, one of the results of the amazing transformations that the West has gifted to the rest of the world in the last 30 years is that you have completely transformed the world. In fact, in my book, The Great Convergence, I use a simple boat metaphor to explain how the world has changed. In the past, when 7.3 billion people lived in 193 separate countries, it was as though they were living in 193 separate boats with captains and crews to take care of each boat and rules to make sure that the boats didn't collide. But as a result, the world having shrunk, the 7.3 billion people no longer live in 193 separate boats. The 7.3 billion people live in 193 separate cabins on the same boat. But the problem about a global boat is that you have captains and crews taking care of each cabin and no captain and crew taking care of the global boat as a whole. And if you want to understand why we are having global problem after global problem after global problem, it's because we haven't woken up to the fact that we are on the same boat. That's why we're having global warming. That's why we're having global financial crisis. That's why we're having global pandemics. That's why we're having global terrorism. It's a small interdependent world. And this is the time when clearly we need to strengthen institutions of global governance. And fortunately, this is a gift from the West in 1945. You gave the world a wonderful set of multilateral institutions. I talk about it in the book. United Nations, IMF, World Bank, World WTO. Gifts from the West. And what have you been doing? You've been undermining these gifts. You know, I've been ambassador to the UN twice, from 84 to 89 and 98 to 2004. And when I was ambassador to the UN, I just couldn't figure out why is it that the United States, which gifted the United Nations to the world, spends so much time trying to weaken or undermine the United Nations. That's against global interests, indeed, against Western interests too. But that's what you've been doing at a time when we need to strengthen our institutions of global governance. You've been undermining them. And precisely at the moment when you need a stronger WTO, you start a trade war. And you say trade wars are good. At a time we need to strengthen the United Nations, you appoint John Bolton as your national security advisor. I mean, that guy is so ignorant. 
about the world. He lives in a bubble, a small mental bubble that never thinks about the seven other billion people on planet Earth. Again, a future historian will wonder, how could you do that? How could you not realize that this is the moment for stronger multilateral institutions? But my third M is the one that you will probably feel the most uncomfortable with. The third M stands for the word Machiavellian. Strange, I'm actually advising the West to be more Machiavellian. And I know, I did a whole course on Machiavelli when I studied philosophy. I know that Machiavelli is a figure, very controversial figure in the West. In fact, the great American political scientist, Leo Strauss, and I quote Leo Strauss in this book, describes him as a figure of evil. Right? But I can recommend to you a wonderful essay written by the great British liberal philosopher, Sir Isaiah Berlin, very well-known philosopher. And it's an essay on Machiavelli in the New York Review of Books. And in that essay, Isaiah Berlin explains why Machiavelli is one of the most misunderstood persons in the world. His goal was actually to promote virtue, V-I-R-T-U, I guess the best English translation is virtue, and to try and achieve the right good outcomes. And that's why Machiavelli is still relevant. And indeed, if the West wants to find its way again in this different world, it may be better for it to be a bit more Machiavellian. So let me give one example of a Machiavellian advice. And this advice was given by President Bill Clinton in a speech he gave at Yale University in 2003. I'll read it to you, and I'll be curious to see whether you think it's Machiavellian. This is what he said. If you believe that maintaining power and control and absolute freedom of movement and sovereignty is an absolute freedom of movement, movement, freedom of movement and sovereignty is important to your country's future. There's nothing inconsistent in the U.S. continuing to behave unilaterally. The U.S. is the biggest, most powerful country in the world. We've got the juice, and we're going to use it. Then he adds a but. But if you believe that we should be trying to create a world with rules and partnerships and habits of behavior that we would like to live in when we are no longer the military, political, economic superpower in the world, then you wouldn't do that. It just depends on what you believe. And Bill Clinton, by the way, is the only American politician who has the courage to say in public what no American politician can say, that America is going to become number two. Hey, wake up. You're not going to be number one forever. So what do you do when you become number two? 
So clearly, it is in America's national interest, as he says, to live in a world where the next number one plays by the rules, plays by multilateral rules, multilateral partnerships. And this is where Bill Clinton was being very cunning. He was saying that if we want China, if you want to slip on the handcuffs of multilateralism onto China, what we do, we slip the handcuffs of multilateralism on ourselves first, on the United States. And then when China becomes number one, you pass on the handcuffs to number one and say, hey, this is how the number one behaves. It's so simple. It's so clear. He gave the speech in 2003. Not one American paid attention to it. No one has ever cited that speech or mentioned that speech again. It's so simple, so clear. And clearly, this is the moment to do so. So at a time, if you listen to Bill Clinton, this actually, actually reinforces my point that America should be pushing for stronger multilateral institutions instead you're undermining them. And when you do so, so for example, let me give you another example. When you ignore the United Nations, right? When you, when you unilaterally intervene in parts of the world, you justify it by saying, you know what? This is a struggle. And this is what Nikki Haley would say in the UN. This is what Samantha Power would say in the UN. This is a struggle between the freedom-living countries of the world and the tyrannies of the world, Russia and China, who of course will support dictators like Assad. So when you paint it in black and white terms, you're white, the rest is black. Now let me give you an example to illustrate why you have to get rid of that black and white view of the world. Because if you say this is a struggle between the freedom-loving democracies in the world, and the tyrannies of the world, fair enough. Which is the world's largest democracy? India. Which is the world's second largest democracy? United States of America. Which is the world's third largest democracy? Indonesia. Do you want to hear what the other democracies are saying? Do you think, they, do you think their views matter? Okay, let me tell you what an Indian official has said about your practices of unilateral intervention in the rest of the world. He says, in most cases, this is Sham Saran, in most cases, the post-intervention situation has been rendered much worse, the violence more lethal, and the suffering of the people who are supposed to be protected much more severe than before. Iraq is an earlier instance Libya and Syria are the more recent ones. A similar story is playing itself out in Ukraine. In each case, no careful thought was given to the possible consequences of intervention. So this is the world's largest democracy speaking. Think twice, be careful. And if you look at your most recent case, 
You've intervened in Iraq twice. The first time was in 1990 under the presidency of George H.W. Bush. What did you do before you intervened? George H.W. Bush sent envoys to over 100 countries around the world, got the support of 100 countries, they all joined in. You had a spectacularly successful intervention in Iraq. 2003, you tried to get the same support. The world said, no, don't do it. I was, I was ambassador to the UN at, the time, at that time. You couldn't get a Security Council resolution. So Kofi Annan said your intervention was illegal. You went ahead unilaterally. And look at the consequence. So you can see that in a world that has changed, you have to change and adapt your impulses. And if you do so, it'll be good for you and also good for the world. So this is actually, I know many of you feel that we live in a dark, difficult, troubled place. Actually, the truth is the exact opposite. We live in a moment of the greatest historical opportunity to create an even better world. And future historians, looking at our time, will say, this generation brought us to the verge of utopia in improving the human condition. All you have to do is complete the next lap and our work would have been done. But to do that, please change course. Thank you. Great, thank you. Most of your remarks were properly, since you're in the U.S., addressed to U.S. behavior. Mm. The West, for quite a long time, has been transatlantic. And, and uh, if this was a European audience, what mm. would you be saying? Well, um, I, I can. I, I do have a lot about Europe. My, uh -huh. You're absolutely right because I'm speaking to an American audience. I focus on America. I did. I did get, launch this book in London and in Amsterdam, and I focus on Europe. And I think Europe is also making similar strategic mistakes. Uh, I think the Europeans have been very unwise in also, as you know, I mean, uh, this is just a recent instance when they, when they removed the government of Gaddafi in Libya, mm -hmm. you saw the consequences, the flood of boat people that entered into uh, Europe. And so my advice to the Europeans is very simple. Geopolitics, at the end of the day, is about geography. Hmm. So when the United States intervenes in the Islamic world, the United States, by and large, is protected by two big oceans, Atlantic mm -hmm. Ocean, Pacific Ocean. Europe is not protected by any big oceans from the Islamic world. So it is in Europe's interest to participate in the calming of the waters in the Middle East instead of roiling the waters in the Middle East. And by the way, I am actually, I must emphasize this fact. Since I come from Southeast Asia, I actually believe that the Islamic world can succeed and modernize on its own, and it will do so. It may take a bit longer, 
but it will succeed. So Europe should be participating in the efforts to modernize that world and not get involved in trying to bomb the countries and start wars in that part of the world. So that's my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice to Europe, just to give you an example of geography, Europe's long-term strategic challenge, unlike America's, mm. is not China. Mm. Europe's long-term strategic challenge is going to come from Africa. And you know why? In 1945, at the end of World War II, uh, Europe's population was twice that of Africa's. Today, Africa's population is more than twice that of Europe's. Mm -hmm. By 2100, Africa's population will be 10 times the size of Europe. 4 billion to 400 million. Now surely, it is in Europe's strategic interest to promote development in Africa. And you know, the best partner for development in Africa will be China. Mm. And so Europe should be working with China to develop Africa to protect its long-term interests. But China is huge in Africa right now. They're it doing is. a lot of stuff. But, but you notice that the Europeans join in the American chorus of disapproval mm -hmm. of what China is doing, what, what China is doing in Africa. Mm -hmm. So the Europeans, basically, my message to them is, you've got to look, start thinking independently mm -hmm. and develop your own perspectives understand your own geography, understand your own environment, and adapt to it, which the Europeans haven't done yet. A couple of questions about basically the Asian side of all of this. Hmm. Uh, Andy Lee asks, what are the top gifts from the East, both uh, historically and, and in current terms? Gosh, uh, that would take another lecture. <laughs> <laughs> I think what we're going to see, I mean, one, one reason, by the way, I can tell you, I'm 70 years old now. Uh, I'm actually very excited to be alive as an Asian at this point in history, because in the last 30 years of my life, I have personally, directly seen the Asian economic renaissance. It happened in my lifetime. I'm very happy. But after an economic renaissance, there comes a cultural renaissance. And you know, I, I'm amazed. Huh? I never th thought I would see this explosion of cultural confidence on the part of my Asian friends. They look at the world so differently today, so much more confident, and so much more interested in their past heritage and culture. So the great rediscovery mm -hmm. of Asian cultures, of Chinese civilization, Indian civilization, all will come. There will be an incredible explosion, cultural explosion happening, and it will be good for the world. Mm -hmm. And it will make the world a much richer place. And you know, it can, it can be things like, by the way, as you know, Prime Minister Modi, to give one concrete example, if I'm not mistaken, I set up a ministry for yoga, if I'm not mistaken, am I correct? Yeah. So yoga is something that will be Indian gift to the world. Mm -hmm. The uh, uh, Chinese, as you know, are rediscovering some of the virtues of Chinese medicine. And as you know, one of the virtues of mm. Chinese medicine is, is that you take a holistic view of the body and you try to do something in, in that line, something like that. So all, all kinds of new things will surface. But at the same time, 
I will also emphasize that all the Asian countries thank the West for the gift of science and technology that you've given to them. A question from Liz Voller. What has surprised you most about Asia's rise over the past decade or so? So you are learned the thing saying all this is in. You've been saying it for a while. Yeah. And Asia on the rise. Uh, I've only been saying it for 30 years. Is it all years. sort of on track with what you expected 25 years ago, or are there surprises along the way still? Uh, I, I would say, uh, number one, the speed has surprised me. I mean, I, I frankly, if you had, uh, even if you had asked me in 1990, let's say, when I started writing all these things, um, I wrote an essay called The West and the Rest in 1992, 1993. Uh, I would never have anticipated that China's share of the global GNP would become number one by 2014. That was a complete surprise hmm. to me. And, uh, and then I would say that the uh, Southeast Asia, right, uh, which everyone, as you know, is described as the Balkans of Asia, has emerged as one of the most peaceful corners of the world. And in fact, Southeast Asia, by the way, has the second most successful regional organization in the world after the European Union. Mm. And nobody knows, most, most in the world haven't heard of it. That's why That's I wrote true. a book called yeah. The Asian Miracle. And you promote that a lot. Say more about it. Yeah, because, you know, if there was one part of the world that was supposed to break up mm -hmm. and become like the Balkans... And, and to create more Yugoslavias, it should have been Southeast Asia. And Indonesia, for example, is a, an amazing story because in 97, 98, Indonesia went through a wrenching, this is only 20 years ago, wrenching financial crisis. And at the height of the financial crisis, I must say that I shared the conventional wisdom in 97, 98 that Indonesia could break apart like Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. And if you had told me in 97, 98 that Indonesia would then emerge as the most successful democracy in the Islamic world 20 years from now, I'd have said, no, no way. But it happened. This is a real, you know, in the Indonesian story, it's a, it's a real miracle. Why wouldn't it break up? And yet it's not even a continent. So Indonesia is this scattered thing, and it, That's it right. held together. It's, it's held, it's, I don't know, it's got uh, several thousand islands. Yeah. And it's, it's a country that's designed to be uh, easily broken up, and it's mm. had separatist movements. And I can tell you, one of the most unfair things that I've ever seen in human history, you know, when President SBY, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono of Indonesia, and his deputy Yusuf Kala managed to achieve peace in Aceh. Now, the conflict in Aceh, for your information, has been going on for a long time, you know, several centuries. They finally produced peace in Aceh. And what did the Nobel Peace Prize, Co peace Prize Committee do? They gave the Nobel Peace Prize for peace in Aceh, to a Finnish gentleman, another friend of mine, Mati Atisari, but they should have given it to the Asians. And that's what I mean. People don't notice it when the Asians do remarkable things. You just end up giving peace prizes to fellow Europeans. And you forget it's the Asians who accomplished this. Well, the Nobel Prizes are sort of done in Europe, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> could come from somewhere else, and maybe it should. Um, Mary Kay Megastad, who's a journalist who's worked in China for a long time, asks, what's a plausible future in which it turns out this is not the Asian century? How could Asia blow it? How could Asia blow it? Uh, well, Asia could blow it in several ways. Uh, if you ask me my biggest concerns, my number one... See, by 2050, 
you know, the world's most important geopolitical relationship is always, without exception, between the world's number one power and the world's number one emerging power. Today, mm. is the world's number one power is the United States, still comprehensively, the world's number one emerging power in China, so that's the most important relationship. Mm-hmm. 20 years from now, the world's number one power will be China, mm-hmm. the world's number one emerging power will be India. Aha. So the China-India relationship could end up very badly. And therefore, it's very important for China and India to manage that relationship well. And unfortunately, when I was in India in January this year, mm-hmm. I noticed a significant rise of what I call anti-China sentiment hmm. uh, on in, in India. And, and that, that, that worries me. So you ask me, am I worried about that? I'm, I'm worried about that. But if you ask me, will there be war within China and India? I'll take bets with you. There'll be no war within China and India. They actually have managed that, that border quite well. No shot has been fired for 40 years or so. I guess it helps that the border is sort of unpleasant mountains to, uh, <laughs> to deal <laughs> no, with. No, actually, if you look at the border within India and Pakistan, it's equally mountainous, uh, but uh, they're shooting point, each other. Yeah, <laughs> quite anyway, good point. But you say there's this sort of anti-China thing in India now, based on what? What are they arguing about? Well, I think there is a, uh, there is a feeling in India uh, that China is moving aggressively in its neighborhood. Right. That China is establishing close relations with Sri Lanka, with Bangladesh, mm. of course, with Pakistan, right. with Nepal. They're building a big port in Pakistan. Sorry? They're building a big port in Pakistan. Uh, yes, yes. China is. And, 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 and by the way, it's actually a good thing that China is building this infrastructure, by the way. Infrastructure is a, not a zero-sum game, you know. Infrastructure okay. is actually good for the, mm-hmm. for the, reg- for the country, yeah, for the region, and, 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 and for the world. And of course, sometimes you end up with uh, mistakes, like, as you know, the Chinese built a huge port in Sri Lanka that has become a white elephant now. I didn't know that. Yeah, and that white elephant, unfortunately, has become China's burden now. Mm-hmm. So China's got to be very careful. You mean the ships what, didn't show up, or what happened? No, they, uh, well, the, it's, a, it's a long and complicated story, but they thought, they thought they could sort of compete with Singapore, and they didn't realize how good Singapore is. <laughs> Singapore yeah. is exceptionally good. Uh, in terms like port services and all that. I mean, we, we are number one in the world. I'm sure you know this. So it's very difficult to compete with Singapore. This may be a good point. You're Singapore. You mm. sort of you know, basically represent Singapore as the world. And Singapore is a sort of... People have a kind of a vague idea about something kind of benign, but kind of autocratic, and mm. uh, Disneyland uh, with the death penalty mm. or something like that. And... I think the, the, the role of Singapore in Asia mm. is much more key than most mm. people recognize. But mm. what's your perspective from within Singapore of that? Yeah. Well, I, I, I would say that um, Singapore has changed a lot, you know. Well, that's and, been and, part of its genius, is it? Yeah. It's gone from platform to platform, yeah. power deals and, with the world. And, and one of Singapore's biggest contributions. I suspect when future historians look at Singapore's role in Asian history, it's, they, they might say that it was Singapore that was the first Asian country to absorb what I call the Western virus mm-hmm. and then share that Western virus with its region. 
And let me tell you one story that brings this home. And I can say this now, because one of my very good friends was the late foreign minister of Indonesia. His name was Ali Alatas, was his name. And he and I became good friends because he, uh, he was the Indonesian ambassador to the UN when I was the Singapore ambassador to the UN. And he told me an amazing story. You know? He said, Kishore, for many years, Indonesia would send its urban planners to Europe. Mm. So they would go to Amsterdam, they would go to Zurich, they go to London, they go to Paris, and then they would come back, they would write a report on how wonderful urban planning is in Amsterdam or London. Then they come to the last paragraph and then they would say, but Amsterdam is in Europe, Jakarta is in Asia, we in Asia cannot do what the Europeans can do. Mm. Sign, report, filed away. Mm. He said one year, by whatever, whatever reason, they sent their urban planners to Singapore. They came back and they wrote a report about how wonderful urban planning in Singapore is. And by the way, Singapore, you know, I'm chairman of the Lee Kuan Yew World City nominating World City Prize nominating committee, so I've studied cities around the world. Singapore is clearly uh, off the charts in terms of urban planning, okay? It's amazing. So the Indonesians came, saw this. They went back, they wrote a report, and they came to the last paragraph and they said, but Singapore is in Europe. <laughs> okay? Singapore is not in Europe. Singapore is in Asia. And he said that's the first time they realize, hey, maybe we can do it too. Mm -hmm. And you see, if you haven't lived through a psychological mindset where you felt helpless and you couldn't change things, you really don't understand what it's like when you suddenly change your mindset. You say, hey, I can do it too. Mm -hmm. And that's why, I mean, I, I tell you, one of the most impressive leaders I've met is the present president of Indonesia, Jokowi. And before he became president, he was what you call the mayor or governor of the capital city, Jakarta. And before he ran for president, he actually invited me to travel with him in a jeep as a driver, and he and I sat behind, someone interpreting for us in front. And he, showed, he took me around the city to show what he was trying to do in Jakarta. Hmm. And then he told me, he came to a spot, he said, Kishore, you see that? See those slums over there? Our dream is to build Singapore-style public housing in that area. So what we have done in Singapore mm -hmm. has been a source of inspiration for many. And by the way, I'm sure you know this. Uh, China has learned so much from Singapore. Deng Xiaoping used to say, Go learn from Singapore. Mm. We have actually hosted in Singapore, I would say thousands of mayors from China. Mm -hmm. And so Singapore, as small as it is, has actually made a fundamental transformation. And just to complete the story, let me tell you another story. You know, Ratan Tata is one of India's most famous industrialists, a man of great integrity. And he said, you know, for many years, he would try and persuade his fellow Indians, why don't we go to Singapore and learn from Singapore? And his fellow Indians would say, ah, Singapore is so small, India is so big, what can big India learn from Singapore? Then he said, China took off. He told his fellow Indians, you see, the Chinese 
learn from Singapore, see where they are. We didn't learn from Singapore, see where we are. This is from an Indian. So this, and, and then this always gets in terms of the question of sort of the autocratic uh, role in an emerging nation, basically. Mm. Uh, and, and also the city aspect, which interests me a lot, because mm. Singapore is basically a city state, mm. even more than Venice was mm. in some respects, because it doesn't have much else besides the city and the people of the city. But Lee Kuan Yew is this, I think, astounding character and personality and force in the 20th century, primarily, to uh, basically design and build, with great cunning, as you pointed out, uh, the Singaporean example, which was a new kind mm. of example in that century, mm. which is, as you say, continuing into this century. Mm. Uh, this is kind of one guy telling how it should be done. And a lot of people, you and many others, uh, realized the genius of it and went along and then made adaptations, mm. so it kept moving through time. Mm. Um, but Singapore was not famous for its democracy, say, mm. the way India is famous for mm. its democracy. So there's questions that are in this stack, as you can imagine, saying, what's the role in democracy of all of this? Is democracy a mm. different thing in Asia than it has been in the West? Mm. Well, I actually, uh, I have discussed this uh, in the book and also elsewhere. And I would say that um, I actually believe in the long run, all societies are going to become democracies. I mean, mm. that, that's no doubt. Mm. And, and what's interesting about the Asian story is that uh, India is succeeding. It's a democracy. Mm -hmm. China is succeeding. It's not a democracy. Right. Right? And so... But they're succeeding differently. Yeah. yeah. There was a time, at least, when sort of Asia watchers here were saying, well, it's going to be a race between China and India, who's going to you yeah. know, rise fastest and clearest mm. and cleanest, or whatever that mm. meant. And uh, that's now been answered. China rose fastest by yeah. far, and it seems like yeah. India is kind of muddling around. Mm. So yeah, but I think that saying? there's also fundamentally a, a major misunderstanding of China in this country. Say more. And I, let me tell you what the major misunderstanding is. You all, you've seen that China was ruled by Communist Party in 1949, mm -hmm. a com ruled by Communist Party in 1979, it'll be ruled by Communist Party 2019, and you assume that China hasn't changed. It's still being right. run by the same Communist Party. But the Chinese Communist Party has obviously changed fundamentally. I mean, from, and I, I went to China for the first time in 1980. When I went to China for the first time in 1980, the Chinese people couldn't, didn't have the freedom. They couldn't choose what to wear. They all wore Maoist suits. Yeah. They couldn't choose where to live, where to work, uh, what to study. Uh, and certainly zero Chinese could travel overseas. Zero. Mm -hmm. Now you go back to China. The Chinese people can, can choose what to wear, where to live, where to work, where to study. And guess what? Every year, 120 million Chinese, right? I think it's more than the population in California. 120 million Chinese leave China freely as tourists. Amazingly, 120 million Chinese return to China freely. 
Now, if China was a communist, gulag, Stalinist state, would you go back to China? And so there's a complete misunderstanding of China. Clearly, there, while the political freedoms in China have an increase, the personal freedoms of the Chinese people has exploded. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, one of, the, one of the questions that future historians will be very puzzled by is the judgments made by America on China. And I'll tell you why they'll be puzzled. The United States of America is about 240 years old. Chinese history, maybe 2,400 years old. In today's world, you have a society which is 240 years old passing judgment on a society which is 2,400 years old, and at a time when China has had its best 30 years of history, the Americans are telling Chinese, you guys are not doing very well. (laughs) Really, you should change your political system. Listen to us, become a democracy, all be well with you. And I can tell you one thing, that Chinese leaders, there's a whole shades of opinion among them. The one complete point of agreement that they all have is that they saw what happened to the Soviet Communist Party. Mm. They saw what happened to the Soviet Union. They saw what happened to Russia. It went overnight to a democracy. Guess what? The Russian economy imploded. Life expectancy came down. Infant mortality went up. The Russian people suffered. And the Chinese said, this is what happens when you have instant democracy. So when the Chinese Mm. said, Give us time, Mm. let us transform our political system in our own way. I said, let them do it. Why do you think that you would know better what's good for them? Does that reflect the fact that for 200 years, you got used to doing it, telling the world how they should behave, and therefore you think you can be a better judge of the rest of the world? So that judgmental character in the West has got to adapt to the rest of the world because the rest of the world today is less willing to be judged by you. So how much of this China sensibility, this awareness of what was going wrong in Russia, another communist country of size, close neighbor, what was going right in Singapore, that kind of attention outside the sort of national, it's a very nationalist and with all of that history is very aware of China as the Middle mm-hmm. Kingdom. Yet they had this awareness looking out. And where I'm going with this is the Politburo seems to have been made up by so many uh, basically technical elites, people from engineering and scientific background, mm-hmm. probably more of them in the governmental leadership than any other country in the world that I, that mm-hmm. I know of. Uh, democratic countries, for whatever reason, don't elect scientists and engineers so much. Mm. So is that part of the dynamic that made China this perceptive, this capable of sort of uh, changing things in a peaceful way and in an adaptive way? Yes. Uh, in fact, I, I just gave a lecture at the Fairbank Center uh, in Harvard talking about precisely this question. Really? Uh, and the question I addressed was, is the Chinese government legitimate? And clearly, as you know, there are different sources of legitimacy. Mm. So when people compare 
the American government with the Chinese government, they say, this is a comparison between a democratic system and an authoritarian system, and a democratic system is, of course, better than an authoritarian system. And I agree, a democratic system is better than an authoritarian system. But if you go, if you dig one level down, and you look at the functioning of the government and how it makes its decisions, and you analyze it, you may see that the democratic system may be performing as a plutocratic system, serving the interests of the people, the tiny elite, mm -hmm. and leaving the, creating a situation where I think half your population hasn't seen an increase in its median income for 40 years. That's what plutocracy is. The Chinese system is a meritocracy. The Chinese mm. Communist Party, by the way, has got one of the most amazing meritocratic selection systems. When I had a research assistant... Say how that works. How does that I, actually okay, function? Because that's got to be a many-level process. When I... I uh, had a research assistant in Columbia University a few weeks ago. She told me, and she was obviously one of the brightest students, mm -hmm. she said she was very disappointed when she left high school. Because she said when you graduate from high school in China, the top student, one student, is selected to join the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. And you want to be that one student mm -hmm. selected to join the Communist Party. And then, in the first year in university, she says, five students are selected to join the Communist Party. Again, the top students. So can you imagine the system which tries to select the best brains to run the country? Now, the Chinese Communist Party is not perfect. It has a lot of flaws in making a lot of mistakes. But in terms of harvesting the brain power of China, it has done an amazing job. And I tell the story, you know, I, I was in diplomacy for 33 years. When I started my career in 1971, if you had asked me, do you want to talk to an American diplomat or a Chinese diplomat? I would say, of course I'll talk to an American diplomat. He's graduate of Princeton, Yale, Harvard, brilliant, reads the New Yorker every week, knows what's going on in the world. The Chinese diplomat in 1971 would walk around with a Mao's little red book in his pocket. And when I talk to him, he'll produce Mao's Red Book and read to me a Mao's Red Book. Why should I waste my time? Chinese, that's 71. You fast forward to 2018, and you ask me to fly to a capital somewhere. Mm -hmm. And you say, do you want to talk to the American ambassador or the Chinese ambassador? The likelihood is that the Chinese ambassador would speak the language of the country, Hmm. would have been posted there several times, hmm. would have a very nuanced, sophisticated view of the country, and the American ambassador would be one who's demoralized, knowing that his budget is being cut, knowing his chances of becoming an ambassador in the top capital is practically zero, because they're all political appointees. So you have a demoralized diplo American diplomatic service and an incredibly dynamic Chinese Foreign Service. That's, what, that's a big change that has happened since 1971. And that's a result mm -hmm. of meritocracy. 
And I can tell you, you'll be quite amazed how good some of these Chinese diplomats are today. I believe it. And it's not supposed to happen in a closed, authoritarian, dictatorial system. Kevin Kelly asks, what's the role of diversity? Will our cultures converge on a sort of universalities in the long run? Or, in a way, get more and more checkered? Well, I think the, we are actually, I mean, the most exciting thing about our world that is happening today is that for the last 200 years, that's been the theme of my remarks, you've had one very successful civilization, Western civilization, mm -hmm. and the other civilizations were underperforming. But now we're going to enter a world where we're going from what I call a mono-civilizational world to a multi-civilizational world. And a multi-civilizational world is almost by definition a much more interesting world to live in. And is that the, in terms of diversity, in terms of choice of... As you know, for a start, if you go to any major cities, the choice of cuisines today is amazing. The diversity of cuisines, even here in San Francisco, is quite amazing, right? So uh, that's a world that we're going to see. You're going to get diversity of experience in many dimensions in the world that's coming. And I guess India is pretty diverse. China is, I mean, China is everything. It's so big and there's so much there. Yeah. It is diverse in a sense. It's been, has been historically kind of tough on some of the minorities in Western yeah. China and so on. Is that the future, do you think? Or are they getting over that? Or what's the trend there? Yeah, well, I think, I think China clearly has a lot of challenges handling uh, uh, there are at least three difficult areas, Tibet, Xinjiang, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and of course, Taiwan. So those are three <laughs> difficult challenges that, right. the, that the Chinese have to deal with. And clearly, uh, if the Chinese want to create happier outcomes, they have to uh, live by what they have themselves said. They should give greater autonomy uh, mm -hmm. to these regions, you know. But of course, as you know, the problem comes when there's armed struggle, mm -hmm. right? And right now, luckily the armed struggle in Tibet is not, is not bad, but mm. the armed struggle in Xinjiang is pretty bad. Hmm. And that's going to be a, a, a big problem. Right. And so it's, it's, uh, the Chinese will have to show a lot of political wisdom uh, in managing that problem. I think the last question is from Richard Lee. He says, what is China now giving to the world in terms of its new Silk Road and its initiatives in Africa? The, you mentioned infrastructure, and the infrastructure is, is sort of good for everybody. Um, mm. But it is a huge commitment that most Americans don't know about that China mm. has been making to basically link Eurasia into one yeah. connected continent, both by sea yeah. and across many paths across the you know, yeah. super fast railroads and so on, yeah. across the middle of, yeah. of Asia. I, you know, I, 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 I think that there are lots of positive contributions that China is making. The number one positive contribution that China is making, by the way, is that you know, the Chinese te can technically take the view, which is correct, eh? that global warming is not just due to the new flows of greenhouse gas emissions from China and India, but because of the stock of greenhouse gas emissions that the West has put up. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, China and India insisted that the West should pay the main price and they shouldn't. So when United States, when Trump decided to walk away from the climate change agreement, 
I actually thought, I was frightened that the Chinese would also walk away from the climate change agreement. The Chinese didn't do so. Right. And I think that's one of the wisest decisions that China made not to give up its commitments to think young. And you know, if, if, they, if they keep their commitments to climate change, it helps the whole world because China is not going to be number one industrial power in the world. Right. Number two, the infrastructure that China is building uh, in Asia is going to help Asia enormously. Mm-hmm. And you know, if infrastructure building is very, very critical. If you want, if you want your economy to grow, you have to build the roads, the railways, the ports, and mm-hmm. sometimes schools and so on and so forth. And the Chinese are investing in that, and and that's a that's a that's a positive uh, sum game uh, for the world. And and just for your information, mm. uh, I think please Google and double check. But I think about seventy percent of the incoming BRI investment to China goes through Singapore, and 33% of the outgoing BRI investment goes through Singapore. So Singapore plays a very critical role uh, in the BRI initiative, and we are playing a critical role because we see this as something that's going to benefit the region. Hmm. And similarly, I think Africa will also benefit uh, from all this infrastructural Hmm. investment. And this is something, frankly, that the United States can work with China. So when, when, when China set up the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, it was mm. an unfortunate decision on the part of the Obama administration to oppose it. Mm. And today I meet more and more Americans, uh, including some very senior ones, I can't mention their names, uh, who have told me privately that was a mistake, mm-hmm. that America should actually work with China in this area. And if you work with China, you actually help China develop the standards of good governance that are very high mm-hmm. in these organizations, and the Chinese will welcome that. So it sounds like more than the West, in a way, China feels like it's got a job to take responsibility for the well-being of the world. Is that their perception of their role now? I've heard this from Kevin Kelly. He thinks that young people... Well, I, I, would, I, would, recommend, I would recommend to you two speeches that uh, Xi Jinping gave last year in January 2017. The first speech was in Davos. The second speech was in the Geneva. Mm-hmm. And actually, I was very heartened by those speeches because it showed that the Chinese actually believe that in the world of tomorrow, to go back to the most boring M word, multilateralism, the Chinese actually believe that we need to strengthen multilateral institutions. And so, uh, the, going back to Bill Clinton's wise advice to Americans, strengthen multilateral institutions. Right now, Xi Jinping wants to do that. So this, is, this actually is a moment of great historic opportunity if America can make the right decision mm-hmm. to actually collaborate with China to strengthen global multilateral institutions. Well, let's see if that happens. Thank you for all this. Thank you. Thank you very much. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. You can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.